0: Just a warning before we start. This podcast discusses mental health conditions, including depression and anxiety, and mentions the use of Class A drugs. Medical News Today, part of Healthline Media, does not endorse or encourage the use of products or treatments that the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, has not approved. Remember the 1960s? Even if you don't, you've probably heard some stories. The swinging 60s saw the emergence of new types of music, but it was also marked by the Vietnam War, the civil rights movement, anti-war protests, and freedom from many social taboos and traditional ways of behaviour. Some people sought freedom in other ways too, freedom to explore alternative realities, One way to do this was by taking hallucinogenic substances, also known as psychedelics. The dissociative, mind-altering state induced by drugs like LSD or psilocybin, which is the psychedelic compound in magic mushrooms, was said to free people from their existing view of the world. The drugs were originally legal, Medical trials were finding them effective in the treatment of alcoholism, anxiety, and depression. Use of psychedelics spread to college campuses and were associated with the hippie anti-war culture. In the late 1960s, fears about side effects and possibly also concerns about the associated hippie counterculture led to LSD being labelled as a Schedule One illegal drug in the US and its equivalent in the UK. Despite this, some 20 million Americans are estimated to have taken LSD at least once in their life. These regulations put an end to the early medical research into using psychedelics for mental health conditions. So why are some experts researching the use of these drugs again? This is In Conversation from Medical News Today. I'm Dr Hilary Geit. Regular listeners will know this podcast is all about conversations, not just between me, our correspondents and experts, but between them as well. Today, as part of Mental Health Month, we'll be exploring the latest research into anxiety and depression, and our new understanding of the neurological mechanisms behind these conditions. Does all this open up further treatment options, such as psychedelic substances? But before we start, how are you feeling? You'd probably say, I'm fine, thanks, Hilary. But I want to know how you really are. One in five people have an anxiety disorder each year, and many of them are undiagnosed. If you think you might be one of them, why not ask yourself two questions? Now, you might need a pen and paper to jot down some numbers. Firstly, Over the last two weeks, how often have you been bothered by feeling nervous, anxious, or on edge? Now give yourself a numerical score. Score zero for no days, several days score one, more than seven days scores two, and nearly every day over the last two weeks scores three. And here's your second question. Again, over the last two weeks, how often have you been unable to stop or control that worrying? If the answer is, I can always stop or control my worrying, of course, that scores zero. Several days have been unable to stop scores one, more than seven days scores two, and nearly every day scores three. Now add up your scores. If your total score is three or more, you might have a clinical anxiety disorder that could be treatable. And of course, this is just a podcast, and we can't advise you, but around two-thirds of people with anxiety don't get any treatment. If you think you might have a mental health condition, your doctor can advise you more on this. On today's show, we're going to start by looking at the underlying mechanisms of anxiety and depression. So joining me in conversation are
1: Dr. Jack Ambrose. Aloha, Hilary. This is Jack Ambrose. I'm the medical director. At Columbia University. Uh, I'm a child and adolescent psychiatrist and a clinical interventionalist.
2: Olivia. I'm Olivia, and I've had anxiety and depression and other mental illnesses. And Medical
0: News Today's Yasmin Sakai, or Yas.
3: Hi, Hilary. I'm Yasmin Nicola Sakai, and I'm the global news editor at Healthline Media. Thanks, everyone,
0: for joining me. Let's start by talking about anxiety. And we'll come to depression later. Olivia, how long have you been experiencing
2: anxiety? Um, from as young as I can remember, really. When I was, like, little, when you'd go to, like, say, if my mum introduced me to dance classes, I'd feel anxious going in. So it's been, from a very young age, I always remember being anxious. And you do you mind telling
0: us how old you are now? Uh, 22. Can you describe what it feels like? Do you have attacks of anxiety or is it always there? It's
2: fairies like always if I like right now I can feel like butterflies inside and my hands are sweaty and you just feel very I don't know on edge sort of thing but then with panic attacks or anxiety attacks I get very like hyperventilated and struggle to breathe and like it's very very different
0: yeah so there's different bits to it aren't there there's something that happens in your body so your breathing gets fast you feel quite sweaty and then it's an unpleasant feeling, isn't it, to kind of feel on edge. And do you find you avoid risky situations? Do you is it actually affecting your behaviour as well?
2: Yeah, it used to be to the point where like I couldn't go into a shop on my own or even going out with friends. It's very hard, like if places are too busy, but I found with like wearing the masks helped quite a lot to go into shops because you're kind of hiding yourself. Yeah, there's a lot of things I have to kind of like push through to get them done. You have to be really brave, don't you? Yeah. Um,
0: And Dr. Ambrose, listening to that, can you describe to us what is actually happening within the brain when you've got those different elements of anxiety?
1: What goes on in the brain is, is actually quite interesting because I think for anxiety disorder as well as panic disorder there's a hyperactivation of what we call the fear network. And by fear network, I mean specific parts of the brain that includes the thalamus, the amygdala, the hippocampus, striatum. And essentially it almost magnified some of the sensory inputs that a person may be experiencing and portray them as as something that's really, really frightful and scary. An interesting situation in, in panic disorder, you get this, Overdrive of fear and over evaluation of fear by the orbital frontal cortex, which is the part of the frontal lobe of the brain that is involved in cognitive process of decision making. So it makes you feel very fearful when you have to make decisions that appears to be a threat when in objective evaluation, it may not necessarily be a threat, but you perceive it as a threat. So your brain is kind of like on overdrive
0: so you've got these different elements to anxiety and they're happening in different parts of the brain different circuits in the brain
1: yes so to your question i think of the different circuitry because it is a fear network and the reason why i'm using this in almost kind of like an air quote standpoint is because they are linked And they tend to happen rather quite almost automatically, because if you think about our our traditional fear response in a fight or flight or freeze standpoint, a lot of times those situations happen, we need to react and respond immediately. So it almost bypassed the, the cognitive part of our brain. And I think that as we later talk about some of the management and treatment of anxiety is try to reintegrate in the cognitive part of our brain that says, hey, is this what I'm perceiving? Is it actually threatening to my life? Is it a subjective component? Are there any objective parts to how I'm feeling?
0: Yasmin, you've been reporting on anxiety. Um, Did you have any questions about what the neuroscience is showing?
3: Well, I was kind of curious about the kind of neuronal connections with anxiety, because as far as I know, with anxious responses, the connection between the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex, they're weakened, which, like Dr. Ambrose said, prevents analytical, logical thinking, and it causes cognitive symptoms as well. I don't think this was a very widely accepted way to think about anxiety. I think before it always used to be considered just an imbalance in neurotransmitters? So are we seeing research shifting more towards a theory of these brain connections and networks and circuitry instead of just a simple chemical imbalance?
1: I think that's a really, really good question, Yasmin. And I think to take a step back, when we're talking about anxiety, there are multiple elements to anxiety. If There's the anxiety disorder, There's the panic disorder, there's the social anxiety disorder, there's the generalized anxiety disorder. And I think if we were to categorize uh, OCD, so obsessive compulsive disorder under the anxiety cluster, there are multiple faces to anxiety. And I think it's helpful to know a little bit more when we're talking about the neural circuits, which part of the anxiety we're referring to. So that's one. The second part to your point is I think our prior understanding of anxiety disorder primarily focusing on neurotransmitters because those were what we use, SSRIs, in order to treat anxiety disorder. So we think of it as like there must be some imbalance in terms of the neurotransmitters in order for us to modulate. And I think as we are getting more advanced in our neuroimaging as well as some of our functional MRIs we're better able to see areas of hypoactivation and hyperactivation in areas that might be a little bit more sensitive when people are experiencing this all kind of encompassing feeling of anxiety.
0: So what you're saying is some areas of the brain go hot and others go cold.
1: Yes. So I think that there are certainly different aspects of the brain that gets hyperactivated and hypoactivated. But I think it's also important for us to clarify what kind of anxiety we're referring to. Are we talking about panic disorder? Are we talking about general anxiety disorder? Are we talking about social anxiety disorder?
0: Right. And Olivia, can I just come to you? We're talking about these sort of connections and networks within the brain. How does that make you think about your anxiety when you hear it? talked about in
2: such an objective way like that um I don't know it feels a bit more well it's nice to know why it's happening sort of thing like knowing that it's what's going on in the brain it's quite nice to know Thank you. So can I just move us on to depression now? So at the beginning
0: of the podcast, we talked about two screening questions for anxiety. Dr. Ambrose, what sorts of questions would you ask to screen for depression?
1: So for depression in particular, one of the common questionnaire that we typically ask our patient is the PHQ-9. So it talks a little bit more about like the level of Interest or pleasure within the last two weeks. If you have had a lot of that, are you feeling particularly down or depressed or hopeless? Do you have difficulties with sleep, energy, appetite? Do you feel bad about yourself? Do you have concentration issues? Do you feel like you, you, you're you talking so slowly or you're fidgeting a lot throughout the day? And and lastly, ask a little bit about um, suicidality. So if things about Do you think you would be better off dead or thoughts about hurting yourself in some way?
0: And you score it on how frequently people experience those things.
1: Yes. So it's typically as um, within the last two weeks is how the person should be scoring it. But I think one thing that I'll, I'll kind of highlight here is it's one thing to use a psychometric. But I think for me in clinical practice, one of the things that I try to focus it on is what is the person sitting in front of me? How are they feeling? How are they responding to the stresses in their life? And how are their mental conditions affecting them? And I I, I try to take a a little bit of of a a more holistic approach than just relying on one score or another, because I find that it can be difficult to quantify people based on scores.
0: And what I was wondering is, what sort of differences are there in the circuitry in the brain or the way in which the neurons in one area of the brain, project into another area of the brain, comparing people with anxiety and depression. How different does the brain architecture look?
1: So, for depression and the neural circuitry, neuroimaging studies of, of patients who have major depressive disorder have provided some evidence for us in terms of some pretty specific functional abnormalities. So for example, in adults, we see abnormally increased amygdala and the ventral striatal and the medial prefrontal cortex activity. So what that means is patients are more attuned towards negative emotion stimuli. They also show abnormally reduced ventral striatal activity towards positive emotion um, and emotional stimuli. Folks who are depressed are, are hit with this double whammy People who are depressed tend to have a bias of attention towards negative emotional stimuli and away from positive emotional and rewarding-related stimuli. So it's kind of like a double whammy.
0: So, Olivia, coming back to you, you've also
2: experienced depression. Can you describe how that feels for you? Um, it's very, I don't know, you're very obviously low in mood. Yeah. I feel very, like, I don't know, like, worthless in them periods, like find it hard to get out of bed like motivated you lose interest it's just very like I don't know it's like being weighed down and like you want to come up but you can't so it's a it's a not very nice
0: so does it feel very different from when you're feeling anxious it sounds different
2: yeah they're very different emotions that you feel like obviously when you're depressed you've kind of feel a bit numb I find you just feel empty rather than like on edge so they're they're very different ends and you you don't have anxiety and depression at the same time sometimes it can I don't know like overlap I guess like especially with work like if I'm more down that day then going to work will make me more anxious like so it's kind of like a they go hand in hand. Right.
0: Okay. So they feel very different, but actually can feed off each other.
2: Yeah. Yes.
1: I think that's actually is a really good point, Hilary. Uh, The way that Olivia described it is really, really common in a lot of patients. Oftentimes, patients who have been anxious for a very long time will also experience depressive symptoms where they feel like, almost like in the fertility of it, like why am I feeling so on edge all the time? I'm worried constantly and I don't have a- any energy to do anything else and thus they, they kind of stumble into a depressive episode and, and just to commiserate and validate how you felt, Olivia, it's a very common sentiment that I hear in, in my patients who had to endure both anxiety and depressive symptoms at the same time.
0: So can we just, talk now very briefly just to cover the conventional treatments for anxiety and depression. Dr. Ambrose, can you just give us a, a brief summary of what the conventional treatments are?
1: Sure. So the general convention for the treatment of both anxiety and depression, and I'll talk a little more specific to the condition because anxiety is kind of like this broad umbrella. So I'll talk about, let's say, generalized anxiety disorder then for depression, because also, again, it's a little bit of a broad umbrella, I'll talk about major depressive disorder. For both conditions right now, for medication, we typically think about antidepressants. And uh, antidepressants is actually a large class of medication that includes SSRIs, SNRIs, atypicals. And in the non-medication options, we have psychotherapy modalities like cognitive behavioral therapy, we have interpersonal therapy, we have dialectical behavioral therapy that could be helpful for some folks. And I think those components we find that combined modalities tend to work better than one versus the other.
0: In general, how effective are these treatments?
1: It's a little bit of a nuanced question because depending on the specific diagnosis so for a major depressive disorder, unfortunately, what we find is that antidepressants are not as effective as we would hope. So roughly about, I'd say, half of patients will say that their antidepressants don't really work well for them. And even after multiple medication trials, about, I'd say, a third of patients will still show no response to antidepressant trials and that's often where we we look to different modalities or combining different modalities.
0: So Yaz, you've been looking into conventional treatments for anxiety and depression and how they might actually work at a neuroscience level because if you take a drug it's going to affect the whole of the brain and earlier we were talking about
3: specific areas of the brain. So what have you come across? So when we look at the history of antidepressant medications and therapies, we see they're mostly focused on neurotransmitters. So a lot of them work around that principle. They balance the levels of these chemicals, mostly to boost these levels that are generally low in such mental health conditions. So when we look at the oldest class ones, we have the tricyclic antidepressants, which they targeted serotonin and norepinephrine and histamines and acetylcholine but of course these came with a lot of side effects such as dry mouth constipation and then we had the SSRIs which are the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors they were developed in the 50s and instead they focused on serotonin and by kind of boosting serotonin indirectly raising norepinephrine levels And then I think in the 90s, we had SNRIs, like um, Dr. Ambrose said, and their serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors. And they, compared to SSRIs, had fewer side effects. And they kind of worked on that balance between serotonin and norepinephrine. And they were a lot safer from a cardiovascular standpoint. But the problem with such medications is that they target the whole brain and they're not really geared towards a certain circuit in the brain or certain networks. So I think that's why newer therapies like deep brain stimulation, they kind of focus on certain regions in the brain.
1: I I think... Jasmine's point is really well taken is that there's really has been almost like a paradigm shift in the way that we looked at the pathophysiology of depression is like we we used to focus on the chemical imbalance and now it has shifted to look at a little bit more as a disorder of synaptic plasticity as well as neural interconnectivity in terms of, do I think that antidepressants are not as efficacious because of their lack of specificity? The answer is probably yes, is like we don't necessarily have the current technology to be really, really targeted in the way that we're using psychopharmacologic treatments.
0: So cognitive behavioral therapy, for example, compared to generic counseling, tends in general to actually have quite good results in terms of effectiveness.
1: Yes. CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, has shown to be pretty similarly efficacious to medication in the treatment of depression. And at the same time, I think the combined modality of both medication and therapy tends to have the most positive outcome.
0: Olivia, what have you found most helpful?
2: Well, I've been on the waiting list for the CBT for about two years. So it's a long time. But I get like I'm doing counselling every other week at the minute while like I'm on a waiting list but yeah they've said that I could go into the cognitive behavioural therapy to try like pinpoint so I'm excited to start it because I've heard good things about it but I've not experienced it yet.
0: And have you had any medication?
2: Yeah I've had lots of medication I'm not on any at the minute just because all the medications I've tried have not been very beneficial but yeah I've been on Citalopram and sertraline and fluoxetine and Quetiapine and there's another, my newest one, but I can never pronounce it. And did any of them help? None of the antidepressants did, but that was because it wasn't directly what I needed it for. And then the Quetiapine was to treat bipolar disorder, but it didn't. It made them much worse, I found, and the side effects outweighed the benefits, so like I just couldn't stop sleeping.
1: I just want to again, acknowledge and validate the ordeal of having to go through a wide variety of different medication because of the lack in diagnostic clarity. And I think that's the challenging piece is it's hard to to know what is it you're treating. And I think unfortunately, a lot of times I, I hear from patients that they went through trials after trials after trials of different medication, and it wasn't helpful And it really boils down to what is it that we're looking at instead of just throwing medication X, Y, and Z at the the picture and hoping something would stick.
0: So we've talked about conventional treatments, but there is this idea that Yasmin brought up about newer approaches, drugs that distort and change our perception of reality, and that's been gaining traction recently. So Dr. Ambrose, you've been using ketamine with some patients. Can you... Tell us about ketamine and how that works.
1: Sure. So ketamine is a dissociative anesthetic and it's used with a wide variety of different applications. In psychiatry, we use it at the sub-anesthetic dose and primarily the mechanism of action for for ketamine as well as the intranasal medication S-ketamine is involving the blockade of glutamate receptors. And it helps targets involving dopamine as well as indirect involvement of the opioid pathways. And what we've seen is there's also a trophic model of action where ketamine produces a really rapid proliferation of dendritic spines in limbic circuits. And that helps the neurons to be a little bit more plastic. This is something that potentially have a, a very, very helpful antidepressant effect that our rapid. And we're talking about in the, the magnitude of potentially minutes to hours.
0: That is such an important point, how quickly these new treatments can work, because it can take around two weeks for traditional antidepressants to have their full effect. Yaz, you've been looking one step further into the use of psychedelics in the treatment of anxiety and depression.
3: Yes. So ketamine and psychedelics, if you don't count ketamine as a classic psychedelic, They do work differently than the conventional antidepressants. Their effect does take effect much quicker. And I think with psychedelics, there have been recent studies on using it once or twice and not ever having to use it again because it helps create these connections that were weakened. And then this increased brain plasticity, which means it changes the brain physically. And then when this is backed by CBT, it can kind of rewire the brain And that really helps in curing or treating the mental health condition.
0: Tell us what the difference is between a drug like ketamine and a psychedelic.
3: So when we talk about psychedelics, we're talking about LSD, or we're talking about psilocybin, which is the psychoactive compound found in magic mushrooms, or we're talking about DMT, uh, D-methyltryptamine. These kind of work differently to ket because... They both expand this state of awareness, but they have different mechanisms to reach that. They have different mechanisms of action. With KET, it works more by relaxing the brain's inhibitory architecture, whereas with psychedelics it kind of overrides the brain's inhibitory architecture. So people that use in clinical trials, when they've used ketamine on patients, they've described it as a gentler kind of ease into this state of awareness. Whereas with psychedelics, it's a bit more strong. And that's why a lot of people can describe it as a challenging experience. So it can be constructive or destructive.
0: Given that balance between constructive and destructive effects, what actually is the promise of using psychedelics as a treatment and what do we need to be concerned about if anything?
1: I think for me uh, as a physician I want to be really agnostic in this space and just let the the clinical evidence really speak for itself like I don't want to put any judgment um, surrounding psychedelics or any particular predilection surrounding it My main focus is to try to be mindful of potential unscrupulous practices who are trying to take advantage of vulnerable and hurting people who are experiencing depression and are hoping to get some cure for their ailments. I want to be mindful of as well as with any kind of medication or, or treatment, it's an additional tool. It's not meant to be a panacea. So I think just trying to be mindful of the fact that there are unfortunately a lot of social and sociological traumas like poverty and racism that it's really hard to treat with a medication or a pill.
0: And are there any conditions or existing treatments that people are on that suggest they shouldn't be taking psychedelics?
1: The main thing is depending on what other medication you might be taking, there could be drug-drug interaction that could potentially be really harmful for the person. So just being really mindful of whatever it is that you're taking. Um, Just let your provider know so at least they can help you navigate the journey.
0: Yeah, it's not just other medications, is it, that could cause a problem? As patients don't just have a single diagnosis as they often do in trials. So, for example, half of people with anxiety or depression also have other diagnoses. Olivia, do you have other mental health diagnoses? Yeah, um, well,
2: I was obviously in and out of hospital quite a lot so they were looking into bipolar disorder but then when the medication quetiapine, weren't working that's when they started going into borderline personality disorder which isn't treatable by medication yet and there's only CBT that is known to kind of help so that's why I'm on the waiting list but with the psychedelic side of things I do agree that that needs to be explored more because I tried mushrooms once and I thought I was fixed for like a month, the whole month. I was like, I love life. I thought everything was beautiful. I didn't understand why I was depressed or anxious. And then I've never done it since and everything kind of went down again. So I don't know. I wish there was more research on things like that.
0: So Dr. Ambrose, is this a concern that as people hear more about the promising research from trials of psychedelics, that they may self-medicate and this could potentially be harmful for some people?
1: I think that's a really good point, Hillary. I think it speaks to the larger issue that we have in our health system, actually, is that people are hurting, people are suffering, and they, they want that suffering to end. And they, they turn to medicine to hopefully give them some kind of guidance and way to, to help them manage their suffering. I do want to acknowledge that, like you said, some people hearing anecdotally that, uh, you know, this works, you should try it. And I think medicine's role is to be really rigorous and again, truly non judgmental in our approach in evaluating what works for the patient and leave it at that. Because I think historically we've run into a lot of barriers with the connotations surrounding psychedelics and what that means and the type of people who use psychedelics. So I think dissociating that kind of negative image from the medication itself, and just letting the, the medication speaks through its evidence, I think is the most helpful effect. One thing that I'll flag though, is that most of our current trials thus far has been one, quite small. And by quite small, I mean, it's it's like about 30 to, to 50 people. So it's kind of hard to generalize to the, the larger population. Two, some of the trials are open label, and some of them don't even have a, a controlled placebo group. One of the largest double-blinded um, randomized controlled trial that I know in terms of looking at uh, psychedelics in comparison to antidepressant for depression is the psilocybin versus escitalopram for depression that was in the New England Journal of Medicine. And that showed that psilocybin was helpful in reducing the patient's depressive disorder but it's pretty comparable in comparison to escitalopram, So it's an interesting question for us right now. It's like, what's the, the true level of efficacy that we might have for some of these novel therapeutics?
0: I read that it's hard to unpick the placebo element of a psychedelic. For example, the anecdotal effectiveness of microdosing of psychedelics that hit the craze a few years ago has been found to be mainly due to the placebo effect.
1: It's difficult to disentangle the experience of using psychedelics as a lot of time people describe the ineffable aspect of it as kind of like being one with the universe that feels very, very mystical and feel very compelling for a lot of people who struggle with with mental health challenges. I think the other aspect that is hard to disentangle is oftentimes psychedelics are used in social setting. So you're, you're in a pro-social space and you have this kind of like peer-to-peer connection that's quite hard to quantify into a pill.
3: Yes. So yes, what I wanted to add is so far you can't really get treatment with psychedelics. The only way you can access psychedelic treatment is through clinical trials. And after that, even if patients had really good results, you can't kind of follow up on treatment. One of the problems with this is it's quite an expensive treatment and it does require a lot of resources. For example, a recent study I looked at, the patients had to be accompanied by two therapists all day for a certain amount of time. And these weren't treatments on their own, so they were always complementary to psychotherapy. Olivia, do you want to say some final words?
2: Yeah, I'd like to look... Well, I've looked into the clinical trials that they run and it'd be nice to... Be able to be a part of that, but like Yaz said, that once the treatment's over, there's no way to go about it. But I'd like to look into more of that route of even if it is self like doing. And what's the future
0: looking like for you?
2: Well, I kind of lost my job this week because of it. It was mainly just because where I was getting sent, I was they weren't very nice to me because I'm an agency worker. Um, So. The anxiety was getting the best of me and I wasn't turning up to shifts. So I am waiting this month. I've got no shifts, but next month I will. So it has affected work and a lot of things. So it is hard, but I just kind of keep going with it. I've been with like obviously the mental health team since I was about 13. So it is really, really long and it is quite hard to get any help. So I don't know. I think the best thing I've done is moving in to a house share because there's people around you all the time and it's very busy so there's like you kind of have to do it on your own sort of thing
0: well you are one brave woman and thank you so much for coming on the podcast thank you <laughs> dr ambrose yasmin and olivia thank you so much for joining me
1: thank you so much hillary for for having me on
3: thank you everyone thank you dr ambrose and olivia and hillary thank you And of course, thank you for listening.
0: You can read more about anxiety at Medical News Today's brand new content hub that brings together many resources and articles on anxiety into one place. And that's at medicalnewstoday.com forward slash anxiety. We'll be in conversation again at the end of June when we'll all get up to speed on Alzheimer's research. See you then. I'm Dr. Henry Guite and this is a Hivis radio production for Medical News Today.